Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Show by everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 355. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Two big announcements today. Yes, huge announcements today, but I'll tell you what's coming in today's show as well. First up, NASA launched a satellite and it's just getting itself around Mars called Marvin. And I've got a little article by Catherine Inskip, who actually was the narrator of the James Morrow story last week. So we're doing a little thing on that. Then the main fiction is The Mistress of Fishes by Octavia Cade. Then right at the end, we have our science news, Mr. J.J. Campanella. It's the end of the month and we've got Jim on. Then I will talk a little bit more about what's going on with these two new new ideas that I've got, to be quite honest. So I will mention it at the end, but I'll mention them as well soon. So as you know, if you've listened to last week's show, we had Catherine on, who was the narrator of that James Morrow fine story. And I met Catherine down in Worldcon, and it just proves what a great place to kind of, like a hub, you know what I mean? There's me just been sitting on my own for years and years doing this. But it's a great hub to kind of meet and greet people and everything like that. And found out Catherine was an astronomer. Well, it was just too good a chance to miss, you know what I mean? Or not to miss when Maven kind of landed around Mars. I just dropped... Catherine, an email a couple of days ago and said, Catherine, Catherine. So this is Catherine's little article on Maven. On the 21st of September 2014, a new satellite arrived in Mars orbit. Maven has joined five other ongoing missions on or around the Red Planet. 
the Opportunity and Curiosity rovers are still trundling around on the surface. While overhead, the Mars Odyssey orbiter has been searching for water and signs of life. Mars Express, the orbiting mothership of the ill-fated Beagle 2 lander, and MRO, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, have both been making high-resolution imaging observations and mineralogical mapping of the surface, as well as studying the Martian weather. MRO is also looking into potential landing sites for future missions and is looking forward to a comfortable retirement as a relay satellite. The newest arrival is the MAVEN spacecraft. It was launched back in November 2013, and after a journey of 10 months and 442 million miles, it burned half of its remaining fuel and successfully inserted itself into Mars orbit. It's got a few more adjustments still to make, and will eventually settle down to orbiting Mars every four and a half hours. So there it is, orbiting happily around the red planet, looking down on Olympus Mons and the Valles Marinaris, but it might as well be looking down on Stevenage or Wolverhampton for all it cares. The clue is in the name. MAVEN stands for Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution. The N in the name doesn't really stand for anything, I'm afraid, but that's astronomical acronyms for you. And the Martian atmosphere is the entire focus of this satellite's mission. So what's so interesting about the Martian atmosphere? Well, it's cold, it's dry, it's so skimpy it might as well not be there, really. If planetary atmospheres were swimsuits, and I make no apology whatsoever for whatever mental images this metaphor evokes, Venus would be sweating away in a thick neoprene wetsuit, while Mars would be freezing to death in a teeny tiny pair of speedos. And even that doesn't do the sheer paucity of the Martian atmosphere justice. The air pressure at the Martian surface is barely 1% of that here on Earth. You'd have to go up to an altitude of 35 kilometres above sea level, about the same height as scaling Everest four times over, before Earth's atmosphere thins out to the same extent as that of Mars. It really, really is pathetic. But it wasn't always like it is now. We know that Mars's atmosphere was once a lot thicker and warmer and wetter than it is today. There are minerals on Mars that can only form in the presence of liquid water. There are dry river channels and plenty of water ice locked up at the poles and in the ground. But if it did once have a decent atmosphere, it doesn't have one now. What MAVEN is hopefully going to help us understand is where that atmosphere went. You see, the problem with Mars is that it's just that little bit too small. Four and a half billion years ago, when the solar system was still shiny and new, it probably had an atmosphere a lot like Earth and Venus. It had volcanoes, it had plate tectonics... It had a magnetic field that changed polarity every now and then, again, much the same as Earth still does. But Mars, being smaller and further from the Sun, has cooled down just a bit too much. The planet's innards have lost their fluidity, the volcanism has died, and something like four billion years ago the magnetic field faded away. Ever since then, the Martian atmosphere has been at the mercy of the solar wind, Planetary magnetic fields act a little bit like umbrellas. Here on Earth, we're protected from the brunt of the solar wind, 
but Mars has been exposed to the full force of it for billions of years. Slowly but surely, almost its entire atmosphere has been stripped away, little by little, like a stone staircase being gradually worn smooth. And that process is still happening, and that's what Maven's going to be studying, how the solar wind interacts with the Martian atmosphere. And if we understand it better now, we can work backwards to understand what the Martian atmosphere would have been like millions of years ago. And maybe we might learn enough to figure out whether Mars really could once have supported life. There you go. Catherine, what can I say? Thank you so much. Like I say, this was just spur of the moment. I dropped Catherine an email and come, Catherine, what can I say? Thank you so much. If I hear anything else, <laughs> be sure you'll get an email as well as anything kicking off in the kind of the space frontiers. And I've actually just heard, I read somewhere, I think it might have been the New York Times or something like that. India has just now reached this kind of exclusive club where they've get, getting a probe launched and it's it's circling around Mars now as well, or orbiting circling around, orbiting around Mars as well. So they've joined this exclusive club. There you go. So yes, hopefully I will be able to get in touch with Catherine again and get you some more fact articles on anything spacey, if anything kind of crops up. But Catherine, thank you so much. So I was mentioning we have got two new, I'll have you, you know what I'm like, I've got two new ideas kicking off. So, these are them, and one of them is quite strange. <laughs> the first one is SofaCon 2. Yes, SofaCon 2 will be coming, God willing, on March the 14th and 15th of 2015. Yes, when I say God willing, what I mean is we've got a Kickstarter. I'm going to launch a Kickstarter to raise funds for it, I actually cancelled my go-to webinar software. I don't know about probably a year ago there now, and that just costs a fortune. I want to pay some guests that are coming, pay for you know little the pledges that are kind of going out as well. So I'll talk a little bit more later on today about you know the Kickstarter and everything, but it will launch on the fifteenth of October. There you go. So what is the other little idea I've got? Well, again, you know, I met my good friend Gary Main, in, who I handed, if you remember, I handed over the button of the drinking button to Gary. And I'm sure I've mentioned Gary's ex-military, ex-RAF, retired there now, fit as a fiddle. He came up to stay with me a couple of days ago, a few weeks ago there now, and we went for a lovely walk together, you know. And like I say, Gary's as fit as anything in ex-military he knows his way around, you know, the kind of the areas and, you know, he knows how to kind of walk, you know, and walk for distances. So we, we've been chatting through texts and conversations and we decided to walk the Roman Wall next year and probably possibly over the Easter time. We'll wait and see. That exact date is not kind of finalised. But we're wondering, and obviously this is just for... I guess UK, you know, if anyone's welcome to come, but we're going to open it up, and if anybody wants to join with on this walk, I mean, you're talking probably about 80 miles, I would say, from possibly the idea is to leave from a place called Sillith on the west coast and travel over to the northeast coast, you know what I mean? The, the, the home, the mother country, the mother county of England and travel over. And 
either stopping in bed and breakfast and maybe a couple of campsites on the way. Everything at the moment is up in the air, but we're all kind of giddy excited. So I met a few people, you know what I mean, down London, and it'd be nice if, if anyone wants to kind of come on and walk, you know, the Roman War, because, like you say, there's some history steeped in there, man. And I think living in the northeast of England, I, I sort of take it for granted, you know what I mean? Yeah, I've been there with school, and a couple of, about a year ago, I went up with my son and his friend, and we had a great time, and it's, you know, it's a marvellous thing. But to actually, an achievement to walk it would be, you know, tremendous. So that is, you know, the, the gauntlet's down there. If anybody wants to come along with me and do this walk, you know what I mean? And possibly four days, we're thinking, to do these 80-mile... We'll wait and see. I'll talk a little bit more later on in the show, though. So, main fiction. It is The Mistress of Fishes by Octavia Cade. Now, we played a story by Octavia not that long ago, but this one is The Mistress of Fishes, and I'll give you a little heads up about Octavia. Octavia Cade is a PhD candidate in science communications at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Her short fiction appeared in Strange Horizons, Cosmos Magazine and Aurelis, amongst others. Trading Rosemary, which was the story we played, is her first novella, published earlier this year by Mask Books and narrated here on Starship Sofa. I'll put a link to Octavia's site as well. The story is narrated by Barbara Dillon, and Barbara is an editor, producer and actress. Barbara is the managing editor and co-founder of Fanboy Comics, an online conglomerate of geek media independent comic book publisher. During her time with Fanboy Comics, she has served as editor-producer of the graphic novels Something Animal, Identity Thief and The Arcs. Again, I will put a link on to Barbara's site as well, so if you want to pop over there and say thank you for this fantastic narration. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Mistress of Fishes by Octavia Cade. The dead man's flat was sparsely furnished and silent with dust. Cena ran a finger across the tabletop, a clean ribbon of wood unfurling behind it. On the mantelpiece were photographs set in cheap frames, the only things in the room that had been kept carefully dusted. She picked one up, studying the woman in the photo, her old-fashioned dress and cheerful grin, and the one careful string of pearls around her neck. His wife, said the landlord. She died sixteen years ago. Cancer. Started in one of her kidneys, he said. He sighed. I've not seen many round here since. Just district health nurses and the Meals on Wheels people. All the friends must have been hers. That or he really liked being alone. He shook his head. Poor old bastard. Cena hummed a response, neutral. Usually it was the families that came to her, with stories and keepsakes and plans for the funeral. But sometimes there was no one else, and she had to make do with her imagination to transform the dead into something less than bland anonymity. Personal touches were important. What they said about the dead. What they said about the living. Loneliness was something she could work with. She moved into the kitchen, checking the cupboards. Battered saucepans and old soup mix. Cans of beetroot and sweet corn. The fridge was pathetically empty. Souring milk half a bag of carrots, and some eggs. Stacked neatly in one corner was a small column of Tupperware containers. Cena peeled back a corner to find remnants of a rich curry. 
That's my wife, said the landlord. She felt sorry for him, and it wasn't any trouble to make a bit extra. We invited him to come eat with us, but he wouldn't. Didn't want to impose, I guess. So I'd bring him up a bit now and then, and a couple of beers. Make sure he was all right. I don't see any beer bottles, said Cena, after a careful look around the kitchen. He made me take them out with me, said the landlord. It's a way down to the recycle bins, and his hip wasn't great. That's what I think it was, anyway. He never said. There were red geraniums in a sunny corner and a pot of purple basil on the windowsill. It was withered from lack of water, but when Cena crushed a leaf between her fingers, the deep green scent wafted out. He's had that there basil as long as I can remember, said the landlord. Don't know why. He didn't like the taste of it, you know. Maybe she did. He took the Tupperware from her, stacked the containers carefully. Best get these back home. Anything else I can do? Cena took one last look around the flat. No, she said. You've been very helpful, thank you. Stretching tapa cloth between Raupo reeds to form two dorsal fins rising like sails over the yellow-eyed mullet, the Makawiti. Long afternoons of painting small olive scales along the olive flare of spine, the careful yellow outlining that would barely be seen, half-submerged as it would be, dragged through waves and out to sea. Sometimes relatives would stand with her as Cena measured the body. They would comment, always, on how peaceful the dead looked, on how they could have been sleeping. Cena would make comforting sounds, work quickly and gently so that it would be over sooner for everyone, so that the relatives could go back to houses that were a little emptier than before, and so that she would have less opportunity to lie. The dead did not look peaceful to her, just submerged, their faces pushed beneath the salt surface, the meniscus of water above them obscuring her view and making their faces shimmer like scales in the moonlight. The old man lay before her, bony and awkward on the tray, as if his joints were too big for him, as if he had withered when they took him out of his clothes and left him to sink and shrink within himself. There were no relatives to stand with her, but the medical examiner waited politely off to one side. Cena was too well-respected to be left to an assistant, and she was used to the curiosity that her work inspired. I have plenty of customers, she replied, stretching a tape measure about the bony head, above the closed eyes and sunken cheeks. They all pay well, which gives me the freedom to take cases pro bono, as it were. So I do, once every month. But why him, said the examiner? Was there anything particular that made you choose him, and not one of the other bodies we have here? He seemed lonely, said Cena. That's why I noticed him. No family, no friends. I don't think this was the way he dreamed he'd end up, do you? She removed the tape measure, shifted to one side. Could you help me to move him, please? Onto one side? I need to see his back. To run her hands down his spine. To check for curvatures and imbalances that might affect the weighing of the headdress, the disposition of her floats. More than once, she had had to attach extra weights to the feet of the dead, or strap bundles of reeds to their backs to drag them straight in the water and keep them upright. Slight osteoporosis, said the examiner. Can you see it? I can see it, said Cena, the palm of her hand flat and warm between the old shoulder blades, feeling the cool skin, the cracks and craters of worn flesh. Please, she said. Can I ask how he died? Looks like a heart attack, and then he fell and hit his head, trying to go for the phone, probably. There was a respectful pause as they gently laid him on his back again, 
covered his face with a sheet. What a pity, said Sina. Carving lengths of bone thick as her own fingers, as long as her foot, setting them to the front of the upper jaw of the barracuda, fixing them in place with tiny wooden dowels hidden by thin silver skin, checking for balance that the fangs and the long thrusts of the lower jaw would counter each other before it was time for the scuttling. Crates of empty, broken beer bottles were stacked in the corner of Sina's workshop. She was working on one of hundreds, the neck clamped tight in a vice, stretching hot wire to cut off the bottom of the base into a thin disc. She hummed along with the polishing machine, a rhythmic, tuneless hum that smothered the edges of a previous circle, buffing it fine and clear. Sina cut the bases of some bottles thicker than others. The very thinnest shone the palest green, the palest brown, when the light struck them. The thicker lenses were darker. She would use them to make scales for the old man's float, to show the gradations of color along the flanks of the fish. Inside, she would mount tiny green candles scented with geranium oil, and as the float was towed out to sea on carnival night, the scales would look alive in the moonlight. She had asked the old man's landlord if she might take a copy of the photo on his mantle. There were no relatives to ask. She had promised that she would return it promptly in case any were found, and it had taken less than an hour to scan the image, to return it tidily, the frame polished bright and the glass cleaned of careless smears, a gesture of respect for the dead. The woman in the photo smiled out at her in sepia tones. Sina had stripped the colors from the copy she had made, lest they conflict with the green bronze of the scales. There were hundreds of copies, one for each scale, and Sina had printed them as transparent stickers. When each scale was polished, she would gently transfer the image of his wife onto the back of each scale, carefully rubbing the air bubbles out with soft cloths. It had taken some doing to find a medium for the stickers that would biodegrade, but a specialist in both cellulose and organic inks had been located, and Sina found him easy to work with. When the light shone from behind the scales, they gleamed not only with the transparent color of the bottle, but with the smile of the dead man's wife. Her image was too small to be seen by the carnival spectators, but Sina knew it was there, knew that the image would shine on the cloudy mirror of the ocean, shine in the clear moonlight, and be seen by the wet black eyes of the fish, and that was enough. Covering a light pontoon and waist-high muscles made from cabbage tree fronds and naiku leaves, fitted over a frame of karaka. Inside each muscle was a piece of the dead woman's clothing, cut into fishy shapes and boiled with chunks of cut kelp, threading seaweed through the green lip edges of shells and shelf until it floated on the water like fingers. The week before carnival was her busiest time, the press of color and costume and custom waxing with the moon. Dad was always so interested in what you were doing. He used to tell me about when he was a kid, and the sea around here was all fished out. He was so happy when he found out he'd be a part of it, that we'd managed to place him with you. He was my best mate, he was. We'd go diving off the reef, and he'd have his spear gun and I'd have my camera, and he'd always look at the bones on the bottom and say, that's the way to go. We'd go digging for cockles. No one could cook them like Mum, and she'd be out there with us with her skirts tucked into her knickers, then into the pot with white wine and thyme and some lemons off the big tree out back. She always liked red best. When she was a little girl... Sorry, I'm sorry. It was her favorite color. She had so many red dresses, red skirts, you can't imagine. Can you make something like that for her, as bright as you can? We thought maybe an orange ruffy. 
Then the moments snatched between weaving and construction, carving and design, when Sina would be visited by the dying. She would take them to a small, comfortable room, cordoned off from her workshop by a blue curtain with tiny silver seashells sewn to the hem, and pour them small cups of expensive coffee, thick and black and heavy with sugar. Yes, it was a very popular piece. You wouldn't believe how many people have asked me to recreate it for them. I tell them what I'm telling you. I do apologize, but I don't do repeats. The same fish, yes, but no matter how many times I do the same creature, there's always something different about it. All my clients are individuals, you see. I want to be able to do something for you that is unique. Please don't worry about it. There's only a month between carnivals. Yes, 28 days, you're quite right. And your body could easily be kept over several of these if need be. The use of chemical preservatives is not permitted, you understand. They could damage the ecosystem, so we keep the bodies in cold storage until we're ready for them. I do remember your wife. A lovely woman, and most happy with the yellow tail I made for her. I was so sorry to hear about your illness. You would like a similar design? A mated pair, I understand. We fit many odd-shaped heads here. It's a little different from the usual millinery type. We do keep some bases if you would like to try some on, to see if you're happy with the fit. Though when we make yours, it will be adjusted to, to you specifically. We attach the rest of the headdress afterwards, so I'm afraid you won't get to see the full effect. But I do have some sketches I can show you. Weaving dozens of trevally out of strips of flax, each the size of her palm and with a black spot sewn like a sequin above their gills. Attaching them singly to the headpiece, so they would swim together in a school and dodge and weave across the waves, the wide, thin tail slicing behind them. It's no sacrifice for most of them, said Sina. They wanted to be here. I've got a waiting list backed up years in advance. Half of them have to be kept on ice for months before I can get to them. She was under the stretched frame, skin stained green and brown from the workshop lights shining through the bottle ends, repairing where the end of the dorsal fin had come loose during the move to the docks. I thought the families would be the answer, thought that they'd object to waiting so long before they could have the funeral, see their loved ones put to rest. But no, they're happy to wait. They want to. She snapped the dangling thread off with her teeth, clambered out from under the frame to test the strength of the fin, curled dried flax and tablecloth concertinaed and rustling together. Does that sound right to you? She said to the old man his pale, full face emerging from the hooked cap strapped tight around his head. He was the last of the half-dozen bodies to be loaded. You're the one who has to wear it. She eyed him, wistful in a green and blue skirt and a shirt the color of moonlight. I hope you like it. I really do. I made it for you especially. The fish have come back now, come back with the moon. Regeneration is no easy thing. You get what you pay for. And if it's an easy price and there isn't any sacrifice, just people who are happy to pay, then what you get back isn't worth a damn. Thin little crescent fish, wan and weak, unworthy. There was a half-empty bottle on the floor, and Sina took a sip, wiped the sweat from her face. Gently, she kissed the old man, let a little of the beer trickle from her wet, warm mouth and into his cold one. One for the road, she said sadly. I know you liked beer, and I'm sorry you ended up here. I know you're not anyone who signed up for my services, and that you never asked for them. 
I know you've got no family to see you off. No one who loved you waiting here to watch you go. It's not fair that you're the only one here without that. But what I want you to know, said Sina, that I'll remember you. Fastening tiny airbags to the skeleton of a terakihi beneath the scaled skin surface so that when it crested the waves behind the tug that led the lotia, it would squeak as the bags left the water. Testing those bags in the green sea under the wharf with fishermen and their dogs, their curious children, to get the tone and pitch of the squeak correct. Sina always arrived early on carnival night, slipping easily into the tent where her bodies waited for her, waiting for the floats she brought with her. She laced the caps to their heads, attached the weights, and floated the bodies just off the slipway and out of sight of the crowds. Hearing those crowds laugh and chatter through the canvas, smelling the sweet, sharp sizzle of the food was always for Sina the special highlight of Carnival. For others it might be the parade, and Sina watched that with the satisfaction of a job well done. But the still air of the tent, the silent squeeze of her wetsuit, and the dry scent of wet reeds and scraped flax calmed her breathing, settled her nerves. Her assistants helped her balance the floats, raise them over the heads of the dead. Buoys were attached to each, inconspicuous, keeping the giant sea creatures afloat until they could be cut loose over the deep ocean water. Little fish swam round her as she worked, glinting silver in moonlight. Long lines were strung between each float, between all the floats, linking them together in a giant parade. Cena's floats were at the very end, the highlight of Carnival, the final spots reserved for the Mistress of Fishes. She watched the other floats as they lined ahead of her, assessing the competition, and was satisfied. She could not service all the dead, all those who returned to the ocean, but her place as the finest amongst them was again assured. Moonlight shone on the water as Cena finished, as the floats were hooked up to a boat bedecked with bunting and pulled out to sea, amidst torchlight and cheering and music. Other designers heaved themselves fish-slick out of the water to watch, some to mingle with the crowd and receive congratulations and tarot cakes and warm cider, others to travel alongside the flotilla in little boats of their own. Sina had done that herself when it first began, sailed with the parade out into the deep waters, watching as the fish began to gather, began to eat. Slow at first, little tugs on the floats barely visible, then faster as the larger fish arrived to take great red chunks, and the floats would shake as sharks sheared the meat apart, shake and disintegrate and sink, so slowly, to the ocean bottom to biodegrade in peace. It was satisfying to watch, satisfying to know that fish stocks were regenerating, lured back by the promise of food to a part of the ocean long deserted, left barren by overfishing and pollution. It was satisfying to watch, and once Sina had watched from her own boat. Now she preferred to keep to the water by the docks, the crowds and fireworks above her and the little fish below, to tread silently in the dark ocean and watch the floats and the full moon in peace. Another month gone, she congratulated herself. Another moon come. Lacing Supplejack and Toto together, articulating the spine of a long, thin eel, hiding the headpiece under the middle ribs and attaching the long length of body, the longest Cena had ever made, to buoys more free-floating than the norm, giving the illusion of movement of an eel swimming above its wearer. Cena smoothed her blouse, straightened the conservative trousers. 
She was used to wearing bright patterns, loose skirts and sarongs, necklaces of shell and fishbone. The soles of her feet were hardened from going barefoot, but in the early morning, the first morning after every carnival, she stuffed them into low-heeled shoes, laced them tight, pulled her hair back primly. No one would recognize her dress like this, and that was as it should be. She had to look the part. Carefully, Sina balanced the foil-covered trays in one hand and knocked at the door with the other. She waited patiently for long moments, knowing that the woman she had come to see took time to reach the door, her legs not as strong as they once were. When the door opened, she smiled. Good morning. Sorry to bother you so early. I know we generally don't come out today, but there was a lot of food left over last night, so some of the restaurants made up some special treats. She peeled off a corner of foil to show fish cakes and fritters and tarts with fruit glazed and gleaming like jewels. She was pleased to see the old woman's face light up, was pleased to see her happy. Come in, come in, she said, moving to one side so that Sina could sidle around the walking frame. Goodness, it's been a while since I've had some of those. I used to go down to Carnival every month, I did, but it's getting a bit much for me now. You've got a lovely apartment, though, said Sina. You must be able to see some of it from the balcony. Oh, yes, all the fireworks. They've always been my favorite. The red and yellow rockets. You know the ones. I used to be able to see the parade with my binoculars, but my sight's not what it used to be. Still, when the wind's right, I can hear the crowd and smell the food. It does smell wonderful, doesn't it, said Sina? I had some of those fritters last night, and they were so good. I'm going to have to cut back, though, before I need to go up a dress size. A pretty girl like you doesn't need to worry about that, said the old lady. Now if you could just pop those down on the bench there. Shall I put the jug on? They always asked, and Sina always stayed. It was the least she could do. No one should eat their last meal alone. She carefully plated up a selection, tempted the old lady to have just a little sample. If you can't be a bit naughty at your age, when can you? An hour later, she helped her to bed. Are you sure you're feeling all right, she asked. You're looking a bit poorly. Can I call anyone for you? Goodness no, dear, said the old lady. I have these little turns quite regularly now. Just a little lie down and I'll be all right. Sina gathered up the remains of the meal, stacked them carefully to take with her, washed the plate and the cutlery, making sure to rid them of the last faint trace of poison. I'm going to head off now, she said, poking her head into the bedroom. Is there anything I can get for you before I go? A book? A glass of water? No, thank you, said the old lady. You've been so kind already. Up late last night and out again so early. The day after carnival I always slept till noon. It's been my pleasure, said Sina. Sleep well. Coloring the moonfish the color of sunset and blood, diluted in salt water. Arching the round, flat shape over a tiny skullcap platform. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The perfect balancing of a bowl of coals and red ash that burned as the flotilla swam through the water, shining through the illusion of fish skin and cooking the flesh white to match the moonlight. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Octavia's. Octavia, thank you so much. And Barbara, what can I say? Fantastic, thank you so much as well. So next up is our very own Mr. JJ Campanella with his Science News. Jim, sir. Greetings and indiscernible cavitations, my tremendously adjudicated listeners. And welcome to this September 2014 Science News Update. I'm your host for this dreadfully scrumptious-sized podcast segment, Jim Campanella. I hope everybody out there is doing well as the new school year starts, and fall is just around the corner. I'll be running things a little differently tonight. I only have a couple of stories, but one is a long and fascinating one having to do with the fallout from using uh, human genome sequencing for something other than a strictly medical or research purpose. As I predicted a long time ago, the chickens are coming home to roost for 23andMe. But before that, a story about transparent mice. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Did I hear that right? Transparent mice? What exactly is a transparent mouse? And why would I want a transparent mouse? Imagine, if you will, a scientist gazing into a mouse and seeing a mass of perfectly clear tissues, punctuated with... Gold streaks of comet-like lights. Those are the neurons, entangled and interconnected, wandering from brain to body. The scientist follows the axons and sees easily how they all fit together. There's no opaque tissue in the way. This transparent mouse may sound like a researcher's dream, but a new paper in Cell has finally made it a reality. The research was performed by Caltech's Dr. Viviana Grandarnuru and her team. Before we go on, let me make one thing crystal clear. Pun completely intended. We are not talking here about a live mouse or even live tissues. There is presently no way to make a live mouse transparent without killing the poor mouse. But at the same time, if you could see through even a dead specimen, that would actually be very cool. So how did they do it? Well, Grandanaru and her colleagues started with the cell membrane, one of the biggest barriers to both light and molecular probes entering the tissue, since the fats in the cell's membrane actually scatter light. 
The method that the Stanford group developed, which they called clarity, pulls the lipids out using an electric field. Then they apply detergents to the tissue to hold the lipids and form little fat globules which are charged. The fat globules move toward the electric field, and hence they are moved out. Grandarneru said, quote, Without the fats, tissue will flatten out and lose shape. We replace those fats with something else. Her team linked hydrogel monomers to biomolecules in the tissue before clearing it. Molecules that don't have functional groups, such as fats, remain unbound. The electric field then extracts the fats, leaving the hydrogel structure behind. The only problem with the method is, is that the electric field heats up the tissues and can potentially damage it. Guandarneru solved this problem in the new paper in Cell by getting rid of the damaging electric field and using passive diffusion of gentle clearing chemicals to wash away the lipids. Her group has developed a technique also to inject the clearing solutions through arteries and veins into the dead animal to have the clearing process go even faster. She says, quote, Because the chemicals travel all over the body so quickly, most organs become transparent in just two to three days. The surprise was how well the whole body clearing worked because our goal was to safely clear the brain and spinal cord, unquote. Guandanaru runs a neuroscience lab and says also, quote, Most of my colleagues actually don't work on the brain, so when I shared the work in internal meetings and presentations at Caltech, they were very interested in other applications. This allowed us to get feedback from people who might want to use it outside of neuroscience, unquote. Now, Grandanaru said they need better microscopes and software to process all the data they're not generating. She says there wasn't a need before to image such thick samples since they didn't even exist, but now they do, and they are going to need microscopes and software to deal with all that extra data. Well, I'm pretty impressed by all this, but really, seriously, call me when you make a live mouse transparent. Then I'll be really impressed. That'll be something to see, or not see as the case may be. The next story I got out of the University of Chicago alumni magazine of all places. University of Chicago, if you don't know, pretty much runs Fermilab. Fermilab, if you don't know, is one of the premier high-energy and particle physics laboratories in the whole world. Fermilab is located near Chicago, Illinois, and is operated under contract by the Fermi Research Alliance, which is a partnership of the university's research association along with the University of Chicago. Researchers at Fermilab have built a very new type of detector. It's called a holometer. So what is a holometer measure, you may ask? Well, my mind was seriously bent when I read this. The holometer is designed to study the quantum character of space itself. It measures the quantum coherence of location with apparently unprecedented precision, whatever that means exactly. Laser light passing through an arrangement of mirrors will show whether space stands still or whether it always jitters by a tiny amount carrying all matter with it due to quantum geometrical fluctuations. The researchers call this new property of space-time holographic noise. The holometer has started collecting data that will answer some mind-bending questions about our universe, 
including whether we live in a hologram. Uh, yeah, that was pretty much my response when I read that. It's like, excuse me? A hologram? It sounds like one of those old stand-up comedian jokes from the late Robin Williams. Dr. Craig Hogan, one of the researchers, says, quote, Much like characters on a television show would not know that their seemingly 3D world exists only on a 2D screen, we could be clueless that our 3D space is just an illusion. The information about everything in our universe could actually be encoded in tiny packets in two dimensions, unquote. Hogan says that if you get close enough to your TV screen, you'll see the small bits of data that make a seamless image if you stand back. He says that the universe's information may be contained in the same way, and that the natural pixel size of space is roughly 10 trillion trillion times smaller than an atom, a distance that physicists call the Planck scale. Well, yeah, okay. Hogan also states, rather scarily, quote, We want to find out whether space-time is a quantum system just like matter is. If we see something, it will completely change ideas about space we've used for thousands of years, unquote. Hogan heads the Holometer team, which comprises 21 scientists and students from Fermilab, MIT, University of Chicago, and University of Michigan. Quantum theory suggests that it's impossible to know both the exact location and exact speed of subatomic particles. If space comes in 2D bits with limited information about the precise location of objects, then space itself would fall under the same theory of uncertainty, the same way that matter continues to jiggle as quantum waves, even when cooled to absolute zero. This digitized space should have built-in vibrations, even at its lowest energy state. Essentially, the experiment probes the limits of the universe's ability to store information. If there are a set number of bits that tell you where something is, it eventually becomes impossible to find more specific information about the location, even in principle. The instrument testing these limits is this holometer at Fermilab. They also call it a holographic interferometer. So it's now operating at full power. It uses a pair of interferometers placed close to each other. Each one sends a one kilowatt laser beam, the equivalent of 200,000 laser pointers, at a beam splitter and down two perpendicular 40-meter arms. The light is then reflected back to the beam splitter where the two beams recombine. And this creates fluctuations in brightness if there's any motion. Hogan's team then analyzes those fluctuations in the returning light to see if the beam splitter is moving in a certain way, that is being carried along on the jitter of space itself. Holographic noise is expected to be present at all frequencies, but the scientists' challenge is not to be fooled by other sources of vibration, apparently. The holometer is testing a frequency so high, millions of cycles per second, that motions of normal matter are not likely to cause problems. Rather, the dominant background noise is more often due to radio waves emitted by nearby electronics. The holometer experiment is designed to identify and eliminate noise from those kinds of conventional sources. Hogan finishes with, quote, If we find a noise we can't get rid of, we might be detecting something fundamental about nature, a noise that is intrinsic to space-time. It's an exciting moment for physics. A positive result will open a whole new avenue of questioning about how space-time works, unquote. 
As they say on the Holometer's website at Fermilab, stay tuned. The machine is currently collecting data. Okay, here's the long and final story of the evening. As I said earlier, it's a story having to do with 23andMe and what can go wrong when you decide to make a scientific experiment into a social experiment. You may remember from my previous podcast that 23andMe is a genome sequencing company that for a few hundred dollars or less will examine your genome, not the whole thing at this time, looking at a couple million base pairs, and they will then send you back a report telling you all sorts of genetic diseases you may be prone to and what your genetic heritage may be. They will also hook you up through a social network with others of a similar genetic background. I have felt that 23andMe is a serious problem since they constituted themselves. I feel that it is irresponsible to treat genetic information in such a cavalier manner. It may be fun to have those tests done, but you must do it in a responsible way. The United States Food and Drug Administration doesn't trust 23andMe either. They are among a whole series of companies whose direct-to-consumer whole genome sequencing was shut down a few months ago. You may remember this story from months ago. Those companies were told not to do whole genome sequencing because of questions on quality, reporting, how the data was disseminated to customers, and how well that data was protected. However, 23andMe and the other companies were still allowed to market simpler genetic analyses that did not examine the whole genome. At any rate, I have never believed that 23andMe is a responsible company, and the next story pretty much proves me out. The story I'll repeat below was published in the online magazine Vox, and was told to one of the editors there by the name of Julia Beloz. You can find it easily on Google if you're curious. The hero of our story is, against all odds, a molecular biologist whose family life was completely messed up by 23andMe, making genomes a social connection. This may have happened to a plumber, an electrician, or a lawyer, but it just happened to happen to an actual scientist. Vox calls him George Doe. He's an actual American biologist who used the direct-to-consumer genetic testing service, 23andMe, as part of a course he was teaching on the genome. And he made a surprising discovery about his family in the process. All the names and places in the Vox article are changed to protect the privacy of George's family, though the details of their story remain intact. Here we go. I will mostly be reading the story straight through, although I may put in editorial comments to clarify confusing points. Vox has a Creative Commons license, much like Starship Sofa does, so my reading on the podcast should be no problem. Here we go. I'm a stem cell and reproductive biologist. I fell in love with biology when I was in high school. It was the realization that every cell in my body has the same genome and the same DNA, but each cell is different. A stomach cell is not a brain cell, is not a skin cell, but they're reading from the same book of instructions. With the company 23andMe, you get your personal genome book, your story. Unless you have an identical twin somewhere, then that genetic makeup is unique to you. Last year, I taught a course about the genome. 
For one of the lessons, I demonstrated the process of acquiring a tissue sample from my saliva, and I sent it off to 23andMe to look at a million letters in my genome. 23andMe analyzes them and spits out a report telling you things about yourself at the genetic level. Then you get the awesome bonus of learning about your ancestry, finding out which parts come from Europe, Africa, Asia, or even the Americas, if you are a Native American. I'd spent many years looking at the genes of other animals, particularly mice, but I never looked at my own. Because I was so excited about it, I got two 23andMe kits for my mom and dad as gifts. I thought it would be a lot more fun if I could incorporate my whole family, because you can trace not just the chromosomes, but individual alleles on the chromosomes, so you don't just see them, but where they came from. Also, I felt I had a good handle on my family's medical history, so I was very interested in confirming any susceptibility to cancers that I heard had run in my family, like colon cancer. I wanted to know if I had a genetic risk. I found out I don't have any genetic predisposition to any kind of cancer, which was a great relief to me. But I also discovered through the 23andMe Close Relative Finder program that I have a half-brother, Thomas. I have a Ph.D. in cell and molecular biology. When I saw that I share about 22% of my genome with a person, I thought, well, that's huge. You may think it odd, but it took me a bit of time to realize Thomas and I actually share the same genome with my father. This is how it happened. When you share about 25% genetic similarity with somebody, that means that either it's your grandfather, uncle, or a half-sibling. 23andMe listed Thomas as a grandfather, which was confusing to me and made no sense. I called my dad. All I had was his name, Thomas, and the fact that he's male. I just asked my dad, does this name sound familiar? My dad said no. He logged into his account, and Thomas wasn't showing up at all. I was very confused why he wasn't showing up on my dad's account, until I finally figured out that at the very bottom of your profile, there's a little box that says, check this box if you want to see close family members in this search program. Okay, this is JJ with my first editorial note. 23andMe has since apparently switched to an opt-out system where users will automatically be enrolled in the Close Relatives Finder program. So now everyone gets signed up for the relative search unless they specifically ask not to be. This is exactly the opposite of what George, our narrator, describes. Let's continue. So my dad checked the box, and Thomas's name appeared in his list. 23andMe said dad was 50% related to Thomas and that he was a predicted son. I absolutely freaked out. I said, can I call you back later? I hung up the phone. I pulled out my genetics textbooks and called my contact at 23andMe and asked if it was wrong. I called my sister, and for three days we agonized about what to do. We got into a fight and thought, do we say something? Do we not say something? 
Dad figured that because Thomas was listed on my analysis as my grandfather, that the company had made a mistake. I reached out to Thomas over 23andMe and soon found out that he had been adopted at birth and had been searching for his birth parents for years. I immediately felt empathic. He had his own daughter now, and they're going to a doctor, and the doctor says, tell me about your family's medical history, and he doesn't know anything. And I thought, he has a right to know for his own and his children's sake. Who am I to stand in the way and say, you can't talk to my dad. It might hurt my feelings. At first, I was thinking, this is the coolest genetic story ever. My own personal genetic story. I wasn't particularly upset about it initially, until the rest of the family found out. Their reaction was different. Years of repressed memories and emotions uncorked and resulted in tumultuous times that have torn my nuclear family apart. My parents have divorced. No one is talking to my dad. We're not anywhere close to being healed yet, and I don't know how long it will take to put the pieces back together. After this discovery was made, I went back to 23andMe, and I talked to them, and I said, I'm not sure all your customers realize that when they participate in your Family Finder program, they're participating in what are essentially really advanced paternity tests. People find out their parents aren't who they think they are. They have nearly a million people in the database. If there happens to be anyone in there they're related to, they'll find your match. This is solid science. The person I spoke to at 23andMe didn't really have a response. I don't want to say she was aloof, but she just said, huh, well, that's interesting. I also wanted a response about the grandfather prediction for Thomas. We all know that genetically it's hard to distinguish a son from a grandfather, but I don't think she realized what a big deal that is to get wrong. I don't want to say that if I knew about Thomas, I wouldn't have participated, but I'm really devastated at the outcome. I wrestle with these emotions. I love my family. This is nothing I ever would have wished. My dream would be to introduce Thomas to Dad, to incorporate a new family tradition, to merge families, and then we would all get to broaden our horizons and live happily ever after. That's not what happened at all. I still hold out hope that in time we can resolve things, but I also worry that as these transitions happen, there may have been some permanent emotional damage that may not be undone. 23andMe's way of protecting people is by giving users the chance to click that box to opt into their relative finder program. I think they're trying to protect people from themselves. They believe in the power of information and of learning about yourselves. Some people can't handle the information. Some people don't even know they can't handle it. When you check that close relatives box, it should have a bunch of stars and bells and whistles around it because there are plenty of people who click boxes. Have you actually read your iTunes user agreement? That's how I feel about the family finder thing. You just check all the boxes and just keep doing it. 
and never put a whole lot of thought into the possibilities. I want 23andMe to provide a warning saying, check this box and FYI, people discover their parents aren't their parents. They have siblings they didn't know about. If you check this box, these are the things you'll find. Potentially dark things. And ironically, I'm the one with the PhD, and I understand how this works, but I didn't think through all the practical implications, in part because I thought this wouldn't happen to me. The irony has not escaped me that I gave 23andMe to my parents as a gift. In my own mind, the breakup of my family has been very difficult. I talk to a counselor regularly now. It's helpful for me to see how I deal with these issues. I had to deal with the time that I essentially gave my parents the gift of divorce. If I had never done that, nobody would be the wiser. I thought it was a cool gift. I'm a lover of science, specifically biology and genetics, and just thought I was sharing that with my family, who has always wanted to understand more about what I do with love. I don't know that I would have shared if I knew this would have been the result. One of my favorite phrases is, sunlight is the best disinfectant. I still think that's true. But this has challenged that worldview. This is an example where having more information has had a negative emotional and psychological impact on me and my family relationships. The end. I think that story pretty much speaks for itself. But I do want to say that 23andMe changing their relative finder policy to one of opting out has probably just made things worse. Because just like we click boxes when we are offered them, sometimes we can't find the important boxes that we need to click or know that those boxes even exist. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Always check that box closely before you click or don't click. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Once again, Jim, perfect. What can I say? Great stuff. So back to... Yes, SofaCon. Over the next couple of weeks, I will kind of give you a little heads up what's happening, you know, and how, how things are going on with the SofaCon. But like I say, it is now, I'm recording, this show is on the 24th of September. We've got a 1st of October, an 8th of October, then the Kickstarter will launch on the 15th of October. 30 days. We're hoping to raise £3,000 that will go towards sorting out pledges, paying a couple of the, the big writers we've got there. Yeah, and I've got some huge writers in there and this kind of the, the software needed. And like I say, it will be on March the 14th and 15th of March. <laughs> it's a weekend and it all depends on the Kickstarter. So I'm hoping, you know, kind of you'll get behind us there and we'll get it sorted and hopefully we can, we'll get it off. Because it just, it's getting me so excited, you know what I mean, to kind of do this again and kind of jump into SofaCon. And, you know, it'd be lovely if we kind of, you know, we can do this every year, you know, and just build it up and build it up. Yeah, 
you know, the, the world cons and all that, the great, you know, I had a blast doing it. But something, you know, you just kind of get to them. Do you know what I mean? It's as simple as that. Where this one, we can all get to it and we can all enjoy it, you know what I mean? And we can kind of see how it's going and just, you know, actually participate in, you know, the, the gift of, you know, the technology at the moment is you can kind of join in and you can see your favourite writers, you can ask them questions, you know, there's all sorts of things going on that I've got planned. I'll, like you say, I'll be talking about that over the next couple of weeks. And, you know, even the pledges are kind of quirky and good to, to bring that even more like a richer experience. So hopefully that's what is planned. You know what I mean? If we can do that, that would be fantastic. If we can get this Kickstarter going, that would be amazing. Do you know what I mean? If we get it funded, well, then we have SofaCon too and we, we just enjoy it. It's a great community we've got on Sofa, you know, to do this and have like a, a big celebration each year would be fantastic. Let's see if we can do it in 2015. And the walk. Yes, that's another challenge, you know. I'll tell you where it's kind of come from. I'm a kind of, honestly, like, a, I need to have the kind of focuses, and I always like to be doing stuff, you know what I mean? I'm kind of doing the soaps, and I'm still doing the soaps, you know what I mean? That's kind of really, t- not taking off big time, but I'm actually getting now orders from, like, shops to do, like, kind of bulk orders, which is quite, you know, doing, I think I've got a, an order there for, oh, I don't know, about 140 soaps for a wedding in soon as well. But I always like to kind of focus on things and just keep me attention because I've, like kind of many people, I get, I've got my own kind of little storm clouds, you know, over my head and things. And I've mentioned a few times, I kind of, I think since 90, 92, you know, kind of suffer with anxiety. And that's kind of an up and down thing. And, you know, I, I kind of go through certain periods where it's just the worst thing in the world and it just spoils everything, it kind of sucks everything out of you. And I find f- focusing on things, you know what I mean? Like, you say, Starship Sova is a great example. It just takes everything away, and I'm focusing on that. You know, like I say, SovaCon, my God, I'll be focusing on that to kind of get through. And it just kind of, it's like a little pressure release, you know, just release the pressure, and you kind of forget things, and you don't worry about them and chew on. And I've been trying to you know, kind of do a lot more work, and then again, this is, again, just to focus on something, and just to kind of, you know, clear your mind and get yourself, you know, a little bit kind of fit out either health-wise and mental-wise, you know, as well. And I've been doing lots of walk, and I kind of now walk probably, you know, five to six miles a day with the dogs. You know, <laughs> the dogs don't know what's hit them, man. You know what I mean? It's like, you're joking. Again, again. I got myself one of these a while ago. I got myself one of these up walking you know the up bands i got an up 24 activity tracker and and i've had it probably about 100 days there now and i've walked the equivalent it it keeps on saying these little kind of quirky things you've walked the equivalent of california to mexico city you know (laughs) which i'm kind of two in the morning oh melly look just give us a little update get get to sleep Tony. so i want to kind of just take this a little bit more and now do some kind of nice big walks, which are, you know, over a few days. And then I was speaking to Gary and like you say, Gary's, you know, does this for a living. You know, he did this for a living and he's as fit as out. And he came up and he had his bike. He'd been, you know, and actually when we did the walk, he was striding away like, so, you know, I was like, kind of keep up with Gary, got to keep up with Gary. And I thought it'd be lovely to kind of do a walk with Gary, you know, and especially 
you know, the Roman Wall. We were thinking of doing the coast to coast from a place called St. Bees to Robin Hood's Bay. But I think we <laughs> kind of realised it was about maybe 11 days. Something silly like that, you know. So to do the Roman Wall, and like I say, it's iconic when you get up there and you get on them moors and you kind of the certain places, you know what I mean, where you walk and you're thinking, my God, it's just steeped in history. Do you know what I mean? So it would be lovely to kind of, you know, that's me challenge me and Gary's going to walk that. If anybody else wants to kind of come up on board and kind of, you know, do with her, I'll certainly be kind of throughout the kind of little four, four, possibly five or six <laughs> DNA and A&E, you know, be kind of tweeting it and Facebook and all our kind of adventures and that. But if anybody wants to kind of come along and do that, you know, yeah, I know it's going to be virtually impossible for anyone, you know, abroad. But if anyone is in England, you know, and is a keen walker, you know, the offers there, come up and, you know, stay with me and enjoy this walk, you know, and it'll be, it'll be lovely because, that's all you do is walk, and, and some of these places are kind of lonely places out there, you know what I mean, I've been there, I know what this place is like, you know, <laughs> it's a desolate place, somewhere, and there's just this wall, you know what I mean, and you kind of, either side, it's just moorland, but that'll be the kind of the challenge, and actually the love of it would be to do that, you know, so <clears throat> let me know if you're, if you're kind of interested in the UK, Island or a little bit closer home. God, I would love it if someone from America came came over and kind of we did the walk together. Do you know what I mean? That would be fantastic. So me and Gary are planning this walk. If anybody wants to kind of come along, you know, again, I'll be mentioning it often enough. You know, drop a line, starshipsover at gmail.com. Get yourselves, get start saving for Kickstarter. Let's get 2015 SofaCon 2 done. That would be fantastic. I'll tell you next week what's, you know, little bits and pieces, what's in there. And then the week after, probably tell you about the pledges and everything like that as well. So until next week, we'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.